Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire, and for the first time this week, Jack Frost hasn't come to visit. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London. Uh, no visit from Jack Frost, but it's um, it's pretty grey, it's pretty damp and dank. Not a great cricketing day. Not a great cricketing day, Richard, in many ways. Um, we're speaking on Saturday morning um, following the collapse of the Australian cricket team and makes us wonder whether that is somehow impending the collapse of test cricket itself. It lost the first test match in India uh, within three days, lost it by an innings, and uh, all out for 91 in the second innings. I think statistically one of their worst performances. We have the absolutely perfect guest, the wisest, one of the wisest and most experienced cricket writers in the world. This was one I might even call him the John Arlott of Australian cricket, Mike Cowan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I don't know whether I could run a pub in Hampshire very successfully, but it's it's, it's nice, nice to be with you. Uh, yeah, a very subduing day for Australian cricket. Indeed, I was just talking to Richard before we got going. What a, it's a subduing day for Test cricket because uh, Test cricket can't afford this sort of abject failure uh, by one of the top teams. And Australia is coming out of an empty, soulless test match summer against the West Indies and South Africa. And in fact, Malcolm Knox, a colleague and a very fine writer, wrote today in the Sydney Morning Herald that there was a feeling within the Australian cricket community that the summer of test cricket was going to start in India because we'd missed it uh, through November, December and January. It was about to start now. But of course, we've had this setback immediately and it's, it is quite a severe one. I don't know how it went over in Australia, but it looked to me as though the Australian batsmen seemed completely clueless in the conditions, uh, completely underprepared, in a very bad mental state by the, by the look of the body language. I think you're spot on, Richard, spot on. Mentally, they were certainly the mindset was wrong. Um, it's interesting. They went to, they, they tried, they scarified a pitch over here at North Sydney as part of the build up to try and sort of create the sort of conditions that they might encounter there. But I don't think it had anything to do with technique. It had everything to do with mindset. Um, it's certainly, I mean, the mitigating uh, factors were the fact the injury struck them deeply. They were very unfortunate not to have Stark, Hazelwood and um, Cameron, Cameron Green. Uh, they were very significant outs, certainly, although not all the quicks would have played, obviously. Um, but that aside, they've struggled mentally on the subcontinent for many years. But with, there was a general feeling that they'd come out of that in recent times with very good performances in both uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. But that was, a, that was a severe setback. And it'll be very interesting to see how um, Pat Cummins handles it, because it's the first really big challenge to him as a captain. Was He's um, had been under a bit of pressure as captain in recent times, hadn't he? Quite, quite a bit of criticism. And it wasn't really been stilled by those... Not very competitive series against the West Indies and South Africa at home, was it? No, it, but I think that the main criticism that he's had has been for issues away from the middle. Um, he's a, a very articulate and impressive young man, 
who's got very got a great sense of social justice and very much the modern player in terms of taking on issues or very conscious of issues, particularly on global warming um, and energy matters. And it's it's polarised the community a little bit, I think. Some believe, yes, he's entitled to, to that and to, and to share it. Others think that it's not his, his, his domain and sportsmen should stay clear of it. But I think that's a fairly naive view nowadays. The contemporary sportsman, the articulate contemporary sportsman and leader um, right around the world has been coming quite conspicuous in, on social issues, some of which has been tremendously positive. So I think we've just got to give Cummins a little bit of time to settle into that. Uh, he's an impressive young man, and I think he'll see it through. But he, he is going to have to learn, perhaps, just to balance um, his, the cricket aspects with the, um, social good and social issue matters. Well, do you think some of those criticisms of Cummins were actually orchestrated by, by energy interests, by vested interests? Oh, yes, I don't think there's much doubt about that, that they've seized... Um, those interests have seized, seized a chance. He's a very conspicuous figure, uh, an impressive figure. And um, yes, I think you're right. And he's vulnerable to that. Um, and I think he's, he's learning. He's a, he's a young man. Um, and, um, you know, he's a quite a conservative Catholic boy from Western Sydney. So, you know, he's, he's in a very interesting situation in his development. He's, he's developed impressively as a, as a cricketer. Um, and I believe he will as a leader. Uh, just as a little addenda to that, uh, uh, Richard and, and Mike, I remember in 1964, uh, the England captain Ted Dexter fought a Conservative seat in Wales uh, against Jim Callaghan. And I don't remember any criticism of Ted Dexter for involving himself uh, in politics in that way, um, or of Colin Kaji when he tried to resuscitate English cricketing ties with South Africa uh, in the 1970s. And so we're, we're coming, it's, it's a real double standard. Uh, Britain or England is going to criticise Cummings for the way he stands up for causes he believes in. But can I take it back to the um, to the to this grave issue? I mean, I think what Richard is saying, though, we've had two sort of non-series for Australia in which they've overwhelmed the West Indies and South Africa. And anybody who loves test cricket, dies a little bit inside when that happens because it's the end of the... And now we're having Australia being overwhelmed and unable to play against India. And the, it's the absence of... And that's, this is Australia, the greatest, the finest, uh, most consistent cricket team in the history of the world. Is, some, is, is this telling us something about the, uh, the state of test cricket? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that, that's the big issue at the moment. There's, there's no doubt about that. That I don't uh, test cricket um, uh, cannot withstand a succession of inadequate empty series. I mean, you could see from the crowd in Nagpur how modest it was, um, and India doesn't embrace test match cricket with the same fervour that Australia and England embrace it. Um, although it is worth noting, Peter, that the one positive, and there's been very few positives in the test match arena in recent times, but the powers that be have declared that the Border Gavaska Trophy from this series on, this is only four test matches, but from now on, it will be a five test matches. 
be mm -hmm. it in India or be it in Australia. And so there will only be the two five-test match series in cricket, the Ashes and the Border Gavaskar. These are the two great trophies. And this is the sadness now that at the start of this one, which is so important given recent events, that uh, it was such a poor start to the series. Don't write off the Australians. Um, they will, I hope, come back strongly. But it is a, it is a, uh, it is a worry, be mainly because of the mindset this time. I don't think they went in with the right mindset. How much preparation had they had, uh, Mike? Had they sort of turned up a few days before and had an old nest, or had they actually approached this series in a serious way? Well, they, they're not allowed to. This is one of the great weaknesses of the game, Peter, right around the world. The, I mean, the, you remember the old days of the build-ups with the teams arriving and playing each state, if it was an Ashes series, or playing each county, starting at Worcester or getting off the boat in Perth and playing in the West and working across up the eastern states before the first test in Brisbane. All that is gone. They flew into Bangalore. They had two, three days of nets in Bangalore, then went to Nagpur, and two days later the test match begins why are we surprised then that they collapse we're not is it it's, it's sort of india is a very different kind of environment uh it's got some great new spinners that's the other encouraging thing and uh you know you put the great though the many of the players are to give them that sort of preparation for a what you are, are, are touting as a really serious test match and test series is pretty it's abysmal isn't it yeah, totally. I mean, I th I think it's just a, it's yet another illustration of the devaluation of the traditional game. In their hearts, the powers that be are not interested in it as they once were, and they don't have uh, necessarily have a knowledge of the history or the culture of it. Everything is geared to the short form and the quick the quick money. And uh, it's going to become destructive. I mean, as soon as the test match for South Africa finished here, uh, historically, there would have been a series of one-day international matches, but South Africa wasn't interested in staying. They returned home to South Africa immediately and played their inaugural T20 competition. So uh, there was this emptiness at the end of the Test Series here. There was no international cricket at all. And then this lapse before this week with the resumption of Sheffield Shield cricket. Sheffield Shield cricket is filed under miscellaneous for th four, five, six weeks um, mid-season, and then after the Test Series is finished, Test uh, Shield cricket resumes now. I mean, it's, it's a very, very big issue. The whole structure of a summer has to be reviewed. I tell you what, you know, this is exactly the same thing as happening here in um, England, where, of course, the county championship has been debauched by this revolting organisation called the English Cricket Board, which has surrendered to money. Very neutral comment there, yes. yes. In order to maximise profit at the expense of the traditional long-form game of cricket, marginalising the counties of the Sheffield Shield. I hadn't realised that the Australian Cricket Board was, the, was trashing the Sheffield Shield in the same way at the, as the English Cricket Board are trashing the county championship. I'm afraid they are. Afraid they are and have for the recent years. Um, of course, no crowds at Sheffield Shield. They are being televised occasionally, and the Shield final will be, will be televised. But um, there's no crowds at all. And of course, your Test cricket is going to suffer with that sort of indifference at the first class domestic first class level. As you've seen it in England, the same thing is happening here.
Mike, what's the feeling in Australia about an Ashes series being compressed into six weeks, as it, as it will be this year? Yeah, there's an awareness of it, uh, Richard. There's an awareness of it and a, and a sense of disappointment. But I think to some degree, uh, we're all inured or conditioned to the game being pushed aside for the sake of the short form. So, I mean, they haven't taken... Uh, in, the traditionalists haven't gone to the street with placards, um, but there's, there's great disappointment uh, that this should happen. Um, but we've, we've seen the breakdown of traditional summers. You know, it's been happening progressively, and this is a more dramatic illustration of it. One bright spot in the Australia cricket match, Todd Murphy... Young off-spinner, seven wickets in his, in his first test, out-bowls Nathan Lyon. Not many off-spinners do that. Do you know any... Can you tell us anything about him? No, he's a bit of a surprise. He's a bit of a surprise to all of us. Um, I see he immediately copped the Harry Potter tag because of his oh. glasses. Poor boy. Right. Um, <laughs> it's some inevitability. Taking that over from Daniel Vittori. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, yeah. of course, he's been coached by Vittori, who's looking after the Australian slow bowlers at the moment. And oh. Vittori's one of my very favourite cricketers, a wonderful man, wonderful man. And, and Murphy will do well. His father played um, at uh, St Kilda in grade cricket. Um, he's um, a, a country boy from Echuca on uh, the River Murray. Um, there's, there's been hope for him to develop over in recent years, but he's come through so very quickly. He's only played, I think he's played fewer, is it four or did he have played, played five first-class games? Fewer than did Shane Warne when he came into the side. Mm. Um, and so there's a, a sense of excitement. I think the key thing that the, all the commentators talked about his uh, maturity, his emotional maturity, and, of course, for someone, uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. He would never have bowled 48 overs in his life, um, mm. you know, to do that against such class batting in those conditions uh, and to prosper like he did, is it's a credit to him. And that's the one happy moment out of a very subduing three days. I'd like to ask about the structure of, the, of Cricket Australia. Um, it uh, seems to us here in England, It's on this podcast, we've talked frequently about the lack of accountability of the England and Wales Cricket Board to anybody at all. Um, if you're an Australian cricket fan and you're discontented with, um, with Cricket Australia and the way Australian cricket's being run, what do you do about it? And does Cricket Australia have to listen to you in any way at all? Yes, it, well, <laughs> it's a very good point. I don't know how earnestly they have been listening in recent times. It's been a, a tumultuous period. Um, at, at board level for the last two or three years, I suppose. Um, there's a nine-person board, uh, one director from each of the six states and three independent directors. Um, and so the future of the game is entrusted to them, and there is not a lot of cricket experience there. There is a Greg Rowell, the erstwhile Queensland fast bowler, is on the board. Um, but there's not a lot of cricket experience there. Um, the good news of recent times is that uh, Mike Baird, the former New South Wales Premier, uh, a very astute politician, um, a former corporate banker and a very affable man with a reputation of being a doer, has just been appointed to the chairmanship of the board. And I think this could make a difference at a very critical time. 
Um, so there's uh, there's an element uh, of hope there that uh, the new chairman can uh, pave the way. But um, yes, it's 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 not been an easy time. There's been a lot of conflict, a big staff turnover in the last two years. Um, it came James Sutherland, who was the chief executive, was there for 17 years until he left. And of course, that raised eyebrows, someone being in that office for 17 years. Um, and then Hockley was there for, or I suppose, eight months as acting CEO before he was given the job. And he's still there. And in fairness to him, while he's not a particularly good communicator with the, with the public and the media, he has managed to defy the odds through COVID to meet all the commitments, particularly from the visiting teams, et cetera. And that in itself is an achievement uh, for Nick Hockley. So you give the man his due in that, uh, that context. But uh, yeah, no, it's been an unsettled period, Richard, an unsettled period. I noticed that you said that there was not much cricketing experience on the board. That, of course, is also very much true of the English cricket board. Uh, would, would I be right to surmise that the absence of cricketing experience is made up for by a lot of sharp-suited men who only know about money and marketing? Yes, I think it's uh, fair enough if you're going to make a sweeping observation of perhaps the last 10 years or perhaps even a bit more in Australian cricket, you would say that it, it has been hijacked by the marketers and the publicists at the expense of the true traditionalists with a knowledge and understanding of its culture and history. I think that would be fair to say. Our um, the Australian women's cricket team has been very successful, and Australian women's cricket seems, as we discussed last time, seems to be in a very healthy state and seems to be, on many issues, seems to be far ahead of um, Australian uh, men's cricket. Are Australian women re represented on the board formally? Um, recently, yes, but not not now. Um, the um, uh, her name will leap to me in just in a moment. Who's just stood down from the board, but she was there, a very accomplished um, cricketer, now commentator, Mel Jones. She was a very accomplished player, was Mel, who served on the board, but has now left the board and is working as a, a commentator, one of many very fine women commentators around the world. Right. John Howard, who I think was four times, you know, won four elections in a row, and I can't say I was mad keen on his politics, but I loved his affection for cricket. Uh, and do you think he's got a role to play in pulling things together? No, not now. Um, he did have a crack at one time, you'll remember, for the ICC chairmanship. Um, he's a very senior soul now. Um, and still with a great passion for the game, Peter, a great passion for the game and a great knowledge of the game, loves to, uh, to read about it and write about it. He's still trying to live down a, a very flat off break that he tried to bowl in the presence of uh, Musharraf in uh, Pakistan many, many years ago, which brought him great embarrassment. Um, but um, no, his days, uh, famous, of course, Mark Taylor, the former Australian captain, calling him a cricket tragic, um, and uh, he was very much one of those who believed that, uh, you know, the, the two most important offices in the country were that of the Prime Minister and uh, that of the Australian cricket captain. And uh, so, you know, he's dined out on that for many, many years. Bob Menzies was much the same, a forerunner, of course, the founder of the Liberal Party. Um, and he had a, a photo, the famous photograph of Trumper on his wall at his office in, in Canberra. 
Um, so there's a, the, there's a history of it. Menzies, of course, for some reason, he always found need need to attend an international summit in London during the Lord's Test, didn't he? Well, that's true, but you've had a few have sort of got Chogham conferences organised. I can remember John Major would do the same thing. It was all all a matter of the timing for uh, for Chogham. And, uh, yes, uh, they were very shrewd at that with some of those Liberal leaders. Don't forget Bob, uh, Bob Hawke's fascination too, Peter. I mean, Bob yeah. Hawke had a great uh, love and knowledge of the game. Um, you know, so we've been well served in that respect. Yeah. Bob Hawke nearly got a blue at Oxford, uh, and um, Bob Hawke and John Major played that sort of famous miniature cricket match with the Prime Minister of Pakistan at the time, Nawaz Sharif in Zimbabwe, at one of those common, at a Commonwealth summit, which was arranged. So those, um, yeah, they're not unique in um, following cricket as political leaders. Michael Manley as well. Mike course, yeah, yeah, wrote, yeah. Wrote the entire history of West Indies cricket, yeah. Um, I think there's, in general, uh, in spite of the turmoil or the troubles you've been describing recently in Australian cricket, there's administration, there's quite an admiration in England for the way Australian cricket is run and handled. But actually, there's quite a history of, uh, you know, of ructions and splits, player strikes, disputes between players and the board, disputes amongst players, isn't there? There's quite a... It's, it's more turbulent than than we think, isn't it? Australian history of Australian cricket administration. Yes, I think that, I think that's fair to say. Uh, going right back um, to yes, player strikes and players refusing to tour England and uh, personality conflicts, uh, sectarianism, of course, played uh, played into it in a very major way, particularly in the uh, the thirties, forties. And then, of course, up to World Series cricket, uh, the person, the strength of the personalities, Bradman's clashes. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, it's been there's been tumult in Australian cricket right through. Um, but the, the, the passion for the game and uh, the care for the game has always been there. I think Australians have always prided themselves on the way they've played hard, tough, combative cricket. Uh, that at times, of course, has, has, has been taken to excesses in more recent times, which has been well documented and thankfully seems to be settling down again under Cummins's leadership. But yeah, there has been some very restless periods over the years. It's very encouraging that the uh, that sort of bullying and foul-mouthed and bigoted attitude, which went, which just went too far, didn't it, is, to hear that that is going. Tell me a bit more, like, I'm very interested you know, that sectarianism was a thing in, because we haven't had it really in, in uh, English cricket. It's, it had a lot of it in English football, Celtic Rangers, Liverpool, Everton and so on. Tell me how that, the sectarianism uh, has, has affected you, uh, Aussie cricket. Well, historically, there's, uh, I mean, it's it's hard to gauge a, a definitive period, but in, in a cricket context, when it came to its head, it was at the period when Bradman was prevailing over all. I presume that he was the ultimate boring Protestant, sort of, with his briefcase. He's, he's a Protestant type of player, wasn't he? Yes. Hard-working, dour, humorless. Yes. And he, a bit hard. <laughs> sang in the sang in the choir at, at, in the church in the Anglican church in Barrel, um, and all all the rest of it. Um, but 
it was the it was the competition with O'Reilly or the the conflict with O'Reilly, um, which brought it all to a head. And O'Reilly's support from Fingleton, from McCabe and Leo O'Brien, there was a a hardcore Catholic group there, and it was it, it was seen to be carrying on, and and the conflict was so intense. And a lot of it came, and obviously it played out at, at other levels, and not only at the at the ultimate level of Test cricket. But it, it was a reflection of what was, as as John Arlott always said, the game is a microcosm of society, and what was happening in the wider society in Australia at the period was reflected in this clash between those eminent cricket uh, cricketers of the day. Of course, we have a very chilling although mercifully short-lived example of, I suppose, sectarianism when that lovely Aussie opener, Kawaja, was, didn't find it strangely difficult to get a visa into India. And one might have linked that to Modi, Nahandra Modi's policies towards Muslims, perhaps. Yes, I suppose we could go there. But um, fortunately, he got the visa in the end. It's not his first visit to India, in all fairness, in all fairness. But uh, yes, it did seem to take a little longer than was necessary. Well, I think he was born in Pakistan, wasn't he, um, Usman Khawaja? Yeah. And I think it's, uh, there is, I mean, it's wrong, but there is a technicality involved, isn't there, that they, they hold up all... I think they hold up all visas for um, people who are born in Pakistan. Oh, it's just simply harder. I tell you what, but looking ahead to this year's uh, World Cup, T20 World Cup, I think it's, uh, Modi is raising the stakes all the time when it comes to India's 200 million or so Muslims. And uh, I wonder how, how easy uh, the Pakistan team will find to get around uh, Get into India, even, and of course, England players like Moeen Ali and uh, and Al Rashid. Uh, uh, this, 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 this will be quite a live issue. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, but while we're talking of Kuwaja, I would make the point that his elevation to the Australian side and to the leadership of Queensland has had an enormously positive effect. Mm -hmm. on uh, the mood of the Australian team, the, the disciplines and the behaviour of the Australian team. And he's a good, very strong supporter of, uh, of Cummins. It's been a very big plus. He's brought a, um, a refreshing uh, approach to it. He's known how difficult it can be. He's known the racism. He's known the, the persecution, the discomfort. Um, and he's been able to convey that. I think that's one of the other bonuses of the IPL, perhaps one of the very few, is that it has brought players of different backgrounds, different cultures and different religions into the one dressing room and has helped with the education on social matters and cultural matters. And I give uh, Kawaja full credit for the impact that he's making um, in his role in the Australian team. That's really fascinating and heartening, yeah. He won um, an award quite recently, wasn't he? he was, wasn't he Australian Test Cricketer of the Year? Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was absolutely... He's had an outstanding couple of years. Uh, sadly, he, he found it just as challenging as everyone else over the last three days. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Um, I want to just come back to your own very, very distinguished career of um, 60 years. You've covered a lot of other sports as well as cricket, including boxing, tennis... 
um, athletics, the Commonwealth Games, golf. And I know you're a great lover of Australian rules football as well. Just wondered, there's a big sporting landscape in um, Australia. There's many sports available as professional careers for Australians and as um, for Australian spectators to follow. What do you think about Australian cricket? has made it sort of stand out and survive against that um, and thrive against that that sort of competition i think it's the it's 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 the nature the australian nature it's the the it's the australian weather clearly to a, a very large degree i'm sitting here now at uh, at 10 to 10 at night in 27 degrees uh, sultry sultry very sultry day i can assure you um, but it's uh, we're, we're very fortunate historically. Um, the, the, the weather lends itself to our life outdoors, and a life outdoors is within Australia has always been celebrated in sport and uh, through sport. Cricket, uh, um, tennis used to be perhaps um, not the preeminent summer sport. Cricket it has always been. If you go into the country, Richard, anywhere in the Australian countryside, in the bush, on a Saturday afternoon, you will find tennis and cricket and netball being played. It brings the community together everywhere you go, at, at every town, every township, doesn't matter how remote it is, can be outback Australia. They will all be gathering and, and celebrating the joy of sport. And um, it's even as the country has changed in it in culturally with the massive immigration, first from Europe and now of more recent years, uh, of course, from Asia, um, I mean, the Indian diaspora here now is, is, is greater than, in fact, the Chinese diaspora, which is really quite remarkable. And so it's forever changing. But even the, those newcomers to the country rejoice in sport and, and see that it's a part of the Australian culture. And cricket has been able to withstand most of that competition. Um, and, you know, and I suppose the country is always punched above its weight in most of the sports. I mean, we are a country of only just 26 million people, all sort of gathering to a large degree on the eastern seaboard in uh, sort of Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast and Brisbane, uh, where, of course, the, the, the Olympic Games will be held in 2032. And that'll be the third time the Olympics have been held in, uh, in Australia uh, since uh, the uh, mid, uh, middle of the last century. Thank you. Um... Tennis, um, Mike, as you know, Don Bradman was nearly lost to tennis, wasn't he? A year of his career in the in as a teenager was given over to tennis, wasn't he? And he planned to be a tennis star rather than a cricket one. No, oh, yeah, he was a he was a very good tennis player. He was a great snooker player. He was a great golfer. You know, he was very very accomplished. But um, I think for, from the early days, particularly uh, after O'Reilly had cited him as a boy, I think it was pretty yeah. well ordained yeah. that he would he would prevail as the, as the great batsman. You've, you've been looking back there over over the Aussie sport for the last sixty years. You've covered everything all around the world, and you have this unusual perspective about being a, a gay man working in the cricket world often in countries where gay relationships are, are criminalized or, or dangerous what's your assessment of the progress made for gay people in world cricket since the 60s i, <laughs> I would have thought they haven't budged very far at all peter i'm afraid and particularly in australian cricket i mean there's just no visibility at all um with the women, it's a very different matter. 
uh, uh, the women feel a lot more comfortable about their identity and their sexuality. Um, and uh, the Australian public has embraced uh, the women's team, of which there are a number of, uh, of, uh, of lesbian players and has been historically. And uh, they've been embraced, particularly in recent years, because it's been such a successful side. Within men's cricket, there's um, absolutely none. And perhaps it's opposite we should be speaking today because next week World Pride begins in Sydney. It's the first time World Pride's been held in, uh, in Australia, which is a, the international celebration of the LGBTQ a, um, a community. And a sport is playing a very significant role in it. And I just made a note of it today because I knew you'd be interested. There's 15 sports being played, golf, tennis, football, roller derby, would you believe, aquatics, <clears throat> boxing, dragon boats, martial arts, kickball, hockey, squash, ice hockey, running events, walking events, 10-pin bowling and wrestling. No yeah. cricket. No, no suggestion. Cricket. No suggestion of the of the the gay community in any way embracing it at all. Every other sport, fifteen sports there that I listed, uh, are being involved in this World Pride celebration. And just today, um, it's it's very very interesting that a uh, a release has come, which you may well have seen in. Um, the, uh, it was research from Monash University published in the prestigious British Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, sensitivity training sessions designed to sta stamp out homophobia in sport have been found to have no impact on team attitudes or behaviour, which is a very, very distressing report coming out, um, particularly just as World Pride is, is about to begin. And, and on the front of the magazines of one of the papers today, there's the coming out story of the only basketballer in Australia, Isaac Humphreys with Melbourne United. And you remember recently Josh Cavallo, the Adelaide United soccer player, the only soccer player in Australia. Um, it's extraordinary. And no cricketers. No cricketer at all. No cricketer mm. at all. Mm. No cricketer mm. at all. No Auss Aussie first-class cricketer has ever come out. No, no. Well, I think there's only, there's only one in England. Yeah. Yep. You know, well, that's right. Well, Stephen Davies did it when he was here 11 years ago when he announced, um, I mean, he'd already announced to his family um, and friends that he was gay, but he was the first to come out publicly. And it's interesting because I think with under Cummins's leadership, um, I think that he would certainly support that famous throw a, a line of Joe Roots to uh, Shannon Gabriel. Um, so a few years ago now, you know, don't use it as an insult. There's nothing wrong with being gay, which is a very, very strong observation that Joe Root made. And mm. I'm sure that the bulk of the Australian team now, I mean, they are um, a sensible young worldly men getting more worldly as time passes. I think they would be supportive of that. But, you know, you, you can't be what you can't see. And uh, there is just no visibility in, uh, in the cricket world of all. And uh, that's, you know, it's unsettling for, for me as a, as a journalist. And there's some very fine sports writers, gay sports writers in this country. And, you know, we're as bewildered as the next man. Are you planning to sort of do anything about the fact that, you know, here you are, one of the most distinguished cricket writers in Australia and the world. And yet there you are, you're going to see a, a pride event without cricket. Uh, with lots of other sports, are you are you planning to make any protests or 
mark this in any way? No, I don't. I don't think. But I think what will happen is that two or three of the gay sports writers, Andrew Webster, particularly a very eminent one with the uh, with the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, and I and a couple of others will sit down and and I think it's it's nearly getting to the stage where there's a need to form some sort of you don't want to say committee, but there needs to be two or three voices um, you know, that have a little bit of clout. Um, that uh, that can advance the cause to be a little bit more visible. And um, I think that's an important step forward, and I think that will come. And I think we'd get good support, you know, certainly from the likes of Isaac Humphreys now that he's out, Ian Thorpe, of course, you know, and Sam Kerr, mm -hmm. um, Matthew Mitchum, and the, the diver, you know, who's a great mate of Tom Daly's. You know, I think we could mm -hmm. get some support along those lines. But there's a lot of work to be done, Peter, a lot of work to be done. Well, it's obviously a fantastically important cause, and we'd be anything we can do to give you support. We certainly would. We've, um don't know if you caught our podcast last year, Mike, with um, the Graces Cricket Club in England, uh, which is England's first cricket club for LGBT people. Um, and... Um, they were hoping to arrange a gay ashes independently in within um, in Sydney, but I don't think anything had uh, anything had come of that. No, well, I wasn't aware until you brought it to my attention, Richard, for which I was very grateful. Um, <laughs> I, I went on their website and um, have had a, a look, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. Um, yes, I, I, gay ashes would be wonderful. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing. But just, you know, it's just so sad with World Pride and they're expecting 80,000 people from around the world to come for this celebration for, for over from February 17 to March 5. And what a big celebration it will be. And um, 50,000 um, have had to, to register to walk over Sydney Harbour Bridge on March the 5th as a, <laughs> as a show to show the world that there's some solidarity and that the community uh, is here, is visible um, and uh, is to be respected. And it's, it, it'll be a wonderful celebration. It's, it's just a great pity that cricket is not involved in any way. The ICC doesn't do anything for gay cricketers, does it? Um, headquarters itself in Dubai, which where, where um, gay relationships are actually actually criminal. Yeah. Uh, no, um, no sanctions against homophobic crowd behaviour and um, and insults in the crowd. That's not in the ICC disciplinary code at all. It's not even mentioned. Thank, thankfully, in Australia, there's been in the Cricket Australia has made some progress there in the code of conduct. Um, in fact, they took quite strong. There was a couple of lapses over the last couple of years with James Patterson and Marcus Stoinis, and mm. uh, they took strong action against both of them. So there, you know, the uh, the anti homophobia, the community service announcements, and and particularly Alex Blackwell and um, the former Australian women's captain, who's been a real trailblazer, and her book, Fair Game, has been quite outstanding and has brought so many of the issues to the fore. So there, there are some that are having a real go, Richard, and, and, that, um, and, and that, that is a tremendous relief. But you're quite right. And, of course, it's not only ICC headquarters, of course, it's some of the countries, many of the countries uh, mm -hmm. that stage the international game, of course, where it is uh, homosexuality is illegal and... Um, those that uh, that violate to certain laws are treated, um, you know, just disgracefully. We hope for um, 
better fortunes for Australian cricket, certainly um, better support for Australian test cricket uh, than uh, than you described earlier. And uh, I hope whatever happens, we hope that the rest of the series produces some fine cricket. Uh, by the way, um, it's quite a gloomy week for me, actually. I've, uh, I'm going to have to have a knee. My knee's been troubling me. It stopped me playing hard most of last year, and I'm finally going to have an off. And um, it's quite a dark moment for, as a cricketer when you realise you'll never play cricket again. I've been playing cricket for, do you know, more than 50 years, something like almost six, 60 years almost. And I've loved every summer playing cricket. And suddenly to realise you may never uh, play cricket again is quite heavy. And um, I mentioned this to Francis Ween um, earlier this week, the, the journalist, and he told me about a song from Roy Harper called An Old Batsman Hangs Up His Boots. And I listened to it and I very nearly cried because these things happen, but they you don't, you don't somehow don't realise they're ever going to happen to you. I think there's, uh, there's a lot of sympathy coming from all around the world for you at this point, for people who love cricket, Peter. There's no doubt about that. We understand totally. But never, never, never mind. Perhaps I'm planning at the moment. My schedule is to go to the uh, Saturday of the Lord's Test on the first of July, and, and I'm booked in for the operation with a very distinguished surgeon um, on the third of July. You never know. Perhaps he'll work some miracle. I don't think I'll be this year. Well, well, that's absolutely. <laughs> I can't remember saying I wrote a poem myself about um, about my knee. That's in a rather more comic vein than um, Harper's. Um, it's called Sinatra's Last Over. <laughs> and it began, I'm 73. There's pain in every joint, especially each knee. So give me the ball. I really hope I don't embarrass you all. I'm bowling my friend at match end. And we can't wait to lose, so give me one for the over and one more for the booze. <laughs> very good, Richard. Very, yeah. very good. Very good. But uh, we all, I'm, I'm, it, it, is a, it is a terrible moment when you think you're not going to... I've been there myself, but somehow against all, all better judgment. Well, also in response to appeals from batters all over the world, I've, I've picked up my... I've, I've, Nearly retired many times, or thought I was forced to retire, but I've picked up my career again. Um, and uh, I still plan to bowl again uh, this next season um, to anybody who's willing to receive it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't compete. I haven't played for some years. I was a very, very modest player, um, but uh, also sort of had the issues that Pataldi and Milburn had as well, which does restrict you somewhat in being a free-flowing player. But um, I use that as an excuse. John Inverarity used to love bowling um, at Loughborough in 72. I can remember at the Nets at Loughborough College. He bowled around the wicket, left arm orthodox to me and my uh, having one eye, bowled into my blind spot. And there was absolutely no way I could, absolutely no way I could play him. And, of uh, course, he, he keeps taunting me with that to the day. But, no, I loved the cricket that I played. But uh, as both of you, Richard and Peter, would know, um, that when you are committed to the newspaper game, 
and to the rigours of it and the timetables of a newspaper game from a young man on, you have very little chance of, uh, of playing uh, competitively. And um, but uh, has some good games. Had a couple of ca when I was in England in the early seventies. A couple of, uh, of sort of ca casual games at Shepherd's Bush, which was a lot of joy. And um, but no, I haven't played for a long time. But I do I do remember it and uh, with affection. And there's still some tall tales when some of my teammates get together from the old days. It's always a bit of fun. Did you ever play with our mutual friend Kamar Ahmed, who's, who played a lot? Uh... Went on playing a lot as a, as a journalist himself, didn't he? Yes, I I know. Yeah, I know Karma uh, well. No, I didn't play with him, but uh, I I do know him well and travelled a lot with him. And a uh, good man, an incredibly resilient man. We'll pass on your regards. He's a great friend uh, of ours. Uh, we Richard and I we both played in Shepherd's Bush in the seventies, where you, I remember a unknown young bowler called Norman Cowens. You remember him? Uh, he <laughs> opening the bowling. Quite formidable. It's been such a pleasure to um, to talk to you, Mike. I do hope you'll come back. It's been a, a really enriching and uh, a conversation in which we've learned so much. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Richard. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in Wiltshire. Goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in still dank southeast London. <laughs>